Hi, I'm Leslie Ludy, host of the Set Apart Girl podcast, biblical encouragement for women of all ages. Today, I want to talk about a subject that most of us don't really love, but it's so important, and that is how to handle criticism in a Christ-like way. Most of us do not like to be criticized. It's a really unpleasant feeling, but how do we respond to it in a godly, Christ-honoring way? Before we dive in, I wanted to remind you that we have an event coming up this fall at the Ellerslie campus. It's for wives and moms of all ages and all seasons of life. It's the Marriage and Motherhood Retreat, and our theme is Cultivating a Thriving Home Life. The dates are October 23rd and 24th, and you can also do a simulcast of this event. So if you're not able to make it out here to Colorado, we'd love you to stream this event and share it with others in your life. You can go to setapartmotherhood.com to learn more, to register. This really is a powerful, powerful, refreshing weekend, not a shallow weekend, a weekend where we'll go really, really deep into the truth of God's word and applying it to every area of our lives, especially our home lives, no matter what season of life we may be in. So I hope you'll join me for that. It's a very special weekend that I am very excited about. We also have a week-long discipleship training program happening November 7th through 14th here at the Ellerslie campus. So if you are hungry for a week that will just supercharge your spiritual life, ignite your spiritual fire, give you a passion for truth, a passion for Jesus Christ, meeting like-minded believers of all ages, all backgrounds from all, all around the world, I invite you to go to ellerslie.com. That's E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com to learn more about how you can join us for that week-long discipleship training program in November. So let's dive into how to handle criticism in a Christ-like way. Most of us throughout our lives, especially if we are serious about our Christianity, are going to become the brunt of criticism at one time or another. It seems to just sort of go with the territory, and even Jesus promises that people will not approve of us if we're truly living out the Christian life that he has called us to live. So there was a quote that I read once in a book called If by Amy Carmichael that really, really convicted me. She said, if the praise of others elates me and their blame depresses me, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Calvary love is that love that Jesus demonstrated when he laid down his reputation. He laid down everything that would have made him applauded and praised and popular for our sake in order to rescue us. He became of no reputation. And so the spirit of Calvary love is one that says, you know, the praise of others will not send me on an emotional high, and the blame of others will not send me spiraling downward emotionally because my eyes are fixed on Jesus. And only the grace of God can enable us to live our life that way because naturally as humans, we desire the the praise and the approval of other people. I think it's really important for us to gain God's perspective on being criticized, being reviled. A lot of times it's not the big areas that we get criticized for as Christian women, but small little nitpicky things. And I've noticed that the the more I've pursued Jesus Christ, the more serious I've become about my Christianity over the years, the more I feel just vulnerable to the pot shots of other people. A lot of times people just want to discredit what I'm saying, how I'm living, and they look for things that they can criticize in order to do that. And it's so important for me to take a step back and remember what God says about being reviled and being criticized. Jesus says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, 
you know that it hated me before it hated you. And it doesn't say if the world hates you, you know, that's so sad. You should, you know, feel bad for yourself and you should nurse your wounds and you should go cry on somebody's shoulder. He says, very matter of factly, well, you know what? They hated me before they hated you. So he's just kind of preparing us for what lies ahead if we choose to follow in his footsteps. In the book of Acts, it talks about the apostles being beaten because of their stand for Jesus Christ. And it says that when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And shame in that verse means to dishonor, to insult, to treat with contempt. And I think the way that the apostles responded to that type of treatment was so fascinating because they weren't walking away sad or upset or depressed or angry or frustrated. It says that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Paul has that same attitude in Philippians 3.10 where he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's this incredible intimacy that we can cultivate with Christ when we are willing to go through suffering for his sake, because it gives us a little tiny taste of what he went through on our behalf. First Peter 2, 20 through 21 says, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. That's a powerful verse. We oftentimes think about following in the steps of Christ, meaning, you know, moral behavior and helping the poor and serving other people. And all of that certainly is a way to follow in the steps of Christ. But in this context, it's specifically talking about following in his steps with regard to suffering and doing what is right and being mistreated because of it. And that is a way that we can share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And it says in Philippians 1.29 that it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only that you believe in him, but also that you suffer for his sake. It's not commanded, it's granted as if it's a gift and a privilege. And it took me a while to fully get my mind around what these verses really meant. But I came to the conclusion that I can never repay Jesus Christ for what he's done for me. But by sharing with him in a small part of his sufferings, it's a very small way of showing my love and my gratitude for him. Suffering for him is a gift. It's a privilege. It shows that he's counted me worthy of partaking in a small measure of his sufferings. Like Stephen in the book of Acts, who was counted worthy to receive a standing ovation from Jesus Christ as he was being despised and rejected and reviled by the world. Suffering for the sake of Christ also refines us. It makes us more like him, and it teaches us a deeper understanding of surrender and obedience. And this is something that Jesus learned as well. It says in Hebrews 5, 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So I think it's really important to understand that it is an honor to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Secondly, when we suffer for Christ, when we are the brunt of criticism or reviling because of our set-apart life, because our eyes are on Jesus, because of the decisions that we're making to honor Him, this shows that we're on the right track in our spiritual walk. A lot of times, I think, as Christians, we take a step back when we're being criticized, when we're being accused. 
And we think, well, I must be doing something wrong. What's wrong with me? Why would anybody criticize me? Something must be wrong with me. But oftentimes it's simply because we are standing boldly with Jesus Christ and those around us are made uncomfortable by that. So they're trying to look for a way to discredit the decisions that we're making because they don't want to feel that conviction. And it says in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, these are the words of Jesus, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus says, not only expect this, but rejoice when it happens. And he also warns us that when everyone thinks well of us, something is off track. In Luke 6, 26, he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And then again, in Luke 16, 15, he says, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So don't think that you're just doing great. If everyone loves you, applauds you, approves of you, you have no conflict, everyone thinks you're wonderful, the world just, you know, you just get along great with everyone in the world. And that's a that's a warning sign that something is off track in your spiritual life. When you have people who don't really like how you're living and you do make them uncomfortable because of your decisions, that shows that you're on the right track in your spiritual life. Now, of course, there are many verses in the Bible about not taking criticism and accusation for just foolish decisions and fleshly decisions. So we have to make sure that it's it's not because of uh, a wrong decisions on our part that we're getting criticized and reviled, being, you know, very fleshly and and operating in sin, but simply living with our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ is going to invite criticism whether we're doing anything wrong or not. In fact, it means that we're on the right track spiritually. It says in Hebrews 11:36 through 38 that men and women of faith had trials of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And I think that's an incredible list of suffering for the sake of, of Christ. God has a completely different value system than this world. And it really all boils down to this. If the world loves you, you are probably doing something wrong spiritually. If the world hates you, you're probably doing something right, because Jesus says that is how they treated the prophets who went before you. Now, how do we handle it when criticism and reviling comes from other Christians? And I think for me personally, this has been one of the hardest areas that I've ever had to wrestle through because we sort of expect it from the world. We expect it from our non-Christian friends. But what about when the religious system around us or other Christians in our lives lash out at us or accuse us or criticize us? In John 16, 2, Jesus is telling the disciples about some of the persecution that they'll face after he's gone, after he's no longer walking on this earth. And he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And so he's warning them that the persecution the disciples are going to face is oftentimes going to be coming, not from the Romans, but from the religious system who believes that they're really doing God a favor by persecuting Christians. And we see this in the life of Saul, who then later became Paul. Before his conversion, he was very, very passionate about taking anyone he could find, men, women, and children, and torturing them, putting them in prison, and persecuting them, and running them out of the city 
be anyone who was was a Christian, no matter their situation or their age or their gender or anything, it was like if they're a Christian, they're evil. And he believed that he was fighting on God's side until God literally knocked him flat on his back and told him what was what. The the key truth we have to remember is that the persecution of Jesus Christ, of the apostles, of the prophets, mostly came from the religious system of that day. And so it will be oftentimes no different from us. There will be those in the body of Christ, those in the religious system who will choose to try to discredit us because maybe our lives convict them. Uh, maybe it's just something the enemy is trying to do by stirring up discord within the body of Christ, but it is a common thing and we need to know how to handle it appropriately. I remember one time being accused by a fellow believer, somebody who had been in Christian leadership, and he was an older man that we had respected, but he definitely had some different anger problems in his life, and something triggered a reaction in him, and he was all of a sudden lashing out at us in accusation and screaming and cursing and accusing us of just horrific things. When I say us, I mean my husband, Eric, and I. And we were young at the time, and we were really wrestling with that question, how do we know if this is like godly correction coming from a an older man in our life that is speaking things that he's seen or is this you know really off track and the way that he was delivering his tirade was certainly not godly it was not Christ honoring it was it was very very disturbing in fact and we had to go to the word of god and and say okay god how seriously do we take this accusation since it's someone in the body of Christ someone in leadership someone older and we were led to the book of James where it says out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. That scripture was really, really important for us because we looked it up and we went a little deeper into the meaning of these words and good conduct. It says, if you're truly wise, you're going to show this by your good conduct. And that means Christ-like conduct and lifestyle and behavior. And you're going to show true wisdom by meekness, which means mildness of disposition and gentleness of spirit. And since we saw none of those things in the, the delivery of this man's accusation, it was not Christ-like, it was not gentle, it was not meek. It it was filled with really, really awful things that were very worldly and filled with cuss words and all sorts of things that were not godly, we began to recognize this is not something we should take as a serious correction from God. This is more something the enemy is stirring up through this man against us. And then we were also led to some further scriptures in James that says this wisdom meaning the kind of, quote, wisdom that, that people blend blessing and cursing together, it does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make 
peace. That's in James chapter 3. And so we begin to recognize that the difference between fleshly anger and reviling versus godly correction and exhortation is that one is sown in peace and love and gentleness, and it brings greater spiritual strength into your life. If you've ever been challenged by someone that is really truly godly and is bringing uh, correction to you in a Christ-like way, even though it may sting a little, you'll find that it really it really brings a greater spiritual strength into your life. You can tell this person truly loves you, wants the best for you, and is gently pointing you to truth. And it can be such a rich blessing to receive that kind of correction. But if somebody comes to you and they're filled with anger and pride and arrogance, and they're just pushing you down and you know, talking to you about how worthless you are, which is basically what this man was doing to us. And that only brings discouragement and it brings discord into your life and into the body of Christ around you. That's when you know this is not coming from above. This is something the enemy is stirring up. For whatever reason, maybe there's a breach in this person's life. They've allowed sin, they've allowed anger, they've allowed pride something in, and the enemy's gotten in there and is kind of working through them to bring discouragement and discord. And that's not the kind of wisdom we are to be heeding because it doesn't come from above. So if you've been attacked by someone who is a Christian or is in the church, it's important to ask these questions. Was that person Christ-like in their words and their attitudes? Were they gentle? Were they peaceable in their correction? Did they have a position to speak into your life? Were they marked by humility? and love, or were they marked by arrogance and anger? The fruit of godly correction is found in Proverbs 9, 8 through 9. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. And then the fruit of fleshly correction is found in Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. So if somebody is, is confronting you in anger and they're furious and they're screaming and they're cussing, very likely they are not delivering a message from God. So it's important as you begin to really press into Jesus Christ and walk this path of the set-apart life that you don't allow that type of attack against you to discourage you and to thwart you and to cause you to turn inward and get off track in your spiritual life. And that's something that Eric and I had to learn in walking through situations like this. So I want to look at some practical ways that you can respond to reviling and criticism in a truly Christ-like way. And the first one is not to turn inward. When we were attacked by that one older man in the church, we spent a few days really just so introspective and saying, okay, what are we missing? Does he see something in our lives that we're not seeing? Did we bring this on? And just so focusing inward until finally one morning, we just felt God say, you know, this is a distraction. You need to look upward. You need to look outward. Don't keep turning back inward. Keep your eyes on Jesus and don't spend hours trying to self-evaluate and defend yourself. It's not wisdom that's coming from above, so put it aside, commit it to me, and move on. Here's some great quotes from Amy Carmichael's book, If, again, where she says, If I feel injured when one lays to my charge things which I know not, forgetting that my Savior trod this path to the end, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I am perturbed by reproach and misunderstanding, if I cannot commit the matter and go on in peace and in silence, remember, remembering Gethsemane and the cross, then I know nothing of Calvary love. And of course, there's that amazing verse in the Psalms that says, they looked to him and were radiant, their faces will never be ashamed. And so when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it doesn't matter how we're being attacked, we can be radiant and not covered with shame because we're focused upward and outward. 
And the next way to respond when you're being criticized because of your strong stand for Jesus Christ or the purity of your lifestyle, remember that Jesus says to rejoice when this happens. He says in Luke 6, 22 and 23, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward in heaven is great, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets." Now, that is very counterintuitive. We don't feel like rejoicing when we're being criticized and attacked. But I have learned that when you choose to rejoice, whether you feel like it or not, you say, I am going to rejoice in this, no matter what my emotions are saying right now, it's amazing how it lifts your spirit. You can't be worried or bitter or frustrated and rejoicing at the same time. And rejoicing isn't necessarily just drumming up a bunch of happy emotions. It's choosing to agree with God's word and put emotions in their place and say, Lord, it doesn't feel good. I'm not enjoying this but I believe your word. I believe this is actually a spiritual blessing, so I receive it as a spiritual blessing. Another way to respond when you're criticized or attacked for your good conduct in Christ is to overcome evil with good. It says in Romans 12, 20 through 21, that if your enemy is hungry, you should feed him. If he is thirsty, you should give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's really powerful to know that we can overcome evil, not by responding in the same spirit, but with good. Overcome in this verse means to conquer and to come off victorious. And with good means to be pleasant, joyful, happy, excellent, upright, and honorable in our behavior. And so when we respond to criticism and reviling with the opposite spirit, we actually overcome the evil that is being propagated against us. As it says in 1 Peter 3, 9, that we're not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but we are to give a blessing instead, for you were called for the very pur- this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. I remember hearing the story of a missionary named Otto Koning. Maybe you've heard of him. He uh, is kind of known for the pineapple story, and he was a missionary to New Guinea for a number of years, kind of in the interior where the where the people who had never heard the gospel before, tribes that were always killing each other, and they were cannibals and headhunters. It was a really dark situation. And he had these two men that were always threatening him with weapons and threatening to kill him and scaring his family. And both of them got mortally wounded in this battle, and he had to make the choice whether he was going to use his medical equipment and try to save their lives or just let them die, and he really wanted to let them die. But God was bringing this point across to him that as he would overcome evil with good, there would be a power there. And so he saved their lives, even though they had made life so miserable for him. And what God did through that act of love was truly miraculous. These men, when they were healed, were completely different. They were completely changed, and they served him and his family for 20 plus years. And they just did whatever he needed. They just they just poured out their lives for him because they knew he saved their life. He overcame evil with good. Another thing that we can do when we are being attacked is take a moment to resist the enemy, to resist Satan's work. A lot of times, criticism and attack and reviling comes because Satan is trying to get in there and stir up discouragement and discord in our lives or discord in the body of Christ. It says in Ephesians 6.12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness. And it's so important to remember that because when we're being attacked, we so often look at the person attacking us and think, you know, our battle is against 
against that person or it's that person is our enemy. But in reality, oftentimes they're just a puppet of the enemy. They have some opening in their life where the enemy has been able to get in and, and work through them in some way. And that's what we need to start with. We need to go after that spirit that is working through them, that work of the enemy that is using the weakness in their life to bring havoc into our life. And so take a moment to resist. God has given us the, the authority over all the power of the enemy to, re, to resist Satan's operation in these relationships and stirring up stripe, strife and discord through all of this drama that we're surrounded by. It says in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So this is something that is a guarantee. We don't just pray for deliverance from Satan's attack. We actually take the authority that we have in Christ, resist and renounce Satan's work, and he has to flee from us. And we've done other podcasts about this. So if you want to look deeper into learning how to resist Satan, I would encourage you to listen to some of those other podcasts on this topic. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 says that our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So we are not to just sort of roll over and play dead when the enemy is attacking us, and especially if he's attacking us through stirring up strife and discord all around us, but to say, nope, I will not allow this kind of interference. I will not allow the enemy to wreak havoc in these relationships and take the authority that you have in Christ. Right as we were starting Ellerslie about 11 years ago, which is our discipleship training school, it was incredible how much attack came against us. And it was really strange to me at first because we had been traveling and speaking to very large crowds and writing books and doing very much a, a larger scale ministry. And God put it on our heart to sort of get a central location where we could disciple small groups of people. We wanted to take people deeper in truth than where we could go in just a weekend event. And so we were wanting to start this discipleship training program in Colorado. It was definitely an act of faith to to have a campus and to invite people to come. But we were going from speaking to thousands of people at a time to speaking to maybe you know 50 to 100 people at a time and having them stay for longer and going deeper with them. But the amount of attack that came against us in those months leading up to the start of Ellerslie was just off the charts. And finally, I began to realize this is actually incredible encouraging because it means that what we're heading into is significant in the kingdom of heaven and the enemy does not like it. And there was a promise that God gave me as I was praying through a lot of the attacks that were coming against us. And it was from Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And that is exactly what we saw happen. There were definitely attacks verbally that came against us, false accusation, incredible criticism, and all of it just melted away as we kept our eyes on Jesus. We didn't let it ruffle us. And God had His purposes accomplished. We were able to start our discipleship training program despite all the threats from the enemy. Now, as we are concluding this episode on how to respond correctly to criticism and reviling, it's really also important that we guard against a critical spirit in our own lives. We need to know how to handle it when it comes towards us, but we also need to make sure we're not being a puppet in the hand of the enemy by developing a critical spirit. Sometimes when we are on that path to really pursuing a passionate devotion to Jesus Christ, it's easy to look around at other Christians and kind of get that critical spirit like, hey, they're not serious about their faith. They have a lot of 
compromise in their life. I love what Oswald Chambers said, that God does not give us discernment towards other believers so that we can criticize them, but so that we can intercede for them, so that we can pray for them. And that is what we need to do. If we see things in others' lives, especially other believers' lives, that we are not too impressed with, our attitude is so important. We're not to say, okay, I have the right to look down on them and criticize them, but to say, okay, Lord, you're showing me this for a reason. I'm going to cry out to you on their behalf that they would be awakened to all that you have for them. We are called to approach these people that we disagree with or that we're concerned about in a spirit of love and a spirit of hope and not a spirit of accusation and criticism. So just as you are learning how to process criticism against yourself in a godly way, also be wary of not allowing that to enter your own life and your own heart. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to go deeper into living a Christ-centered life and how we can invite Jesus Christ into every practical daily relationship and daily decision, I invite you to check out the many resources that we have at setapartgirl.com. I pray you have a blessed and Christ-centered week.